If you turn to page six in, uh, in your zines, you'll see our readings for today. Um, there's three readings, just a heads up. The second one starts in the middle, but I'll let you know when we get there. Um, the first is from Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse uh, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the, tri- judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Uh, the second reading comes from Romans chapter 8, but we're going to pick it up in verse 18. So on page 7 there. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the final reading comes from Colossians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. 
Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to be able to open the scriptures with you this afternoon. Slightly intimidated after that prayer. It was uh, so encouraging. Thank you, Bronte. Um, What wonderful encouragement for us. And I hope uh, from Romans 8 this afternoon that we can be mutually encouraged as well. Let's pray as we look at this together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal in it uh, your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you reveal in it the way in which by the Spirit we can live uh, in ways that are pleasing to you, that bring glory to you, and that do good to others. And so as we think about this theme of work in light of eternity, we pray that you might challenge, you might comfort, you might encourage, uh, you might be at work in us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a final sermon in the series on Made to Work, as Sam said earlier, and we're wanting to really join the dots between Sunday and Monday. Uh, Sunday is the time we meet together, and wonderfully, like we've done in singing together, in looking at, at the scriptures together, we've been looking at who we are in the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's a time where our hearts are enlarged by the truths that are ours in, in Christ. Uh, But we want those truths to connect to to Monday morning. We want to know how our Christian faith works itself out in the the various contexts we find ourselves throughout the week. And for most of us, that's that's work. Work is what we set our hands to. Now, that can look different uh, for for a lot of us. It looks different for a lot of us in this room. Uh, For some of us, it's school. For some of us, it's parenting. For some of us, it's in the hospitality industry. For some of us, it's in various different other industries, law, teaching. Um, We can think of also various ways in which we we put our hands to work and we we seek to do that in this world. And so how are we to think about that in light of uh, Jesus' work for us? And that's what we're we're looking at today. We're going to try and put the last few weeks together. See, we started a few weeks ago in Genesis 1 where we began in God's good world. Uh, God created this world and the refrain in Genesis 1 that this world is, is good. It's good. And so that this world is good means that we can be enthusiastic about our work in it to the glory of God. And we saw in the second week that our fundamental task is to use the language of Genesis, is to, to fill and subdue. It's to cultivate the world, to, to take its potential uh, and to expand on that so we can have purpose in our work. But our experience of work, as we saw last week, is one that is frustrated. Last week we saw that at its root, sin is our desire to be like God. We saw that in that, in that story, as, as Eve took the apple from the tree, it's a kind of a picture of what happened. We, we are disconnected from God in our desire to be like Him, in making our own decisions, we actually disconnected from our life source. And like if you, if you take a piece of fruit from 
the vine, what happens? It, it decays. And so when you disconnect our lives from God, what happens? There is decay and brokenness. And we saw that that expands into this world, our relationship with it, and to our work. It's cursed. It's frustrating. It can be fruitless. It can be thankless. It can be grating. It can be, it can be tiring. Work can become drudgery for us. But the other way in which work can be affected from the curse is it taps into that, that root sin in the sense that it can become an idol for us as well, can't it? It was interesting this week in uh, The Atlantic, the staff writer Derek Thompson, he's a non-religious writer, but he, he wrote really insightfully about this very thing, about work becoming idolatrous. He writes this, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, Others worship their children, but everyone worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. It's bringing out the idea that workism is this competing idol. He, he defines workism as this. It's a belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. The centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And basically, the article goes on to say that, that work was never created to, to shoulder that kind of burden. And you see the effects of that. So as we, as we wrestle with work and as we think about how Jesus' work on the cross for us affects it, where, where do you kind of sit in that spectrum? Do you, do you wake up on the Monday and it's the drudgery element that you might feel? It's, it's the effects of the curse that you feel. It's the thankless, the fruitless, the frustrations. Or is, is it more the, the idolatry of work that it, it does bring fulfillment and the temptation is to, to make it that means which you find your centerpiece and, and life's purpose. Now, the reality is we probably fall somewhere in between or maybe a nice cocktail of them both, but the good news is that the Scriptures speak into that. Jesus speaks into that. And so the kinds of questions that I want to be looking at today is how do we think about work rightly after Jesus' death and resurrection? What, what, what is important now between Jesus' resurrection and his coming again? What does that say about our work? How does it relate to eternity? See, we're going to see the impact of Christ's redeeming work address these questions for us and give us new scope into thinking about our, our witness in the workplace. But we're going to do that using uh, the text of, of Romans 8. Now, Romans 8 is a wonderful, rich chapter of the Scriptures that I'm not going to do any justice to in covering the great truths of it, but we're going to use it as a means of encouragement as we seek to address some of these questions. And we're going to look, first of all, uh, at verses 1 to 17. If you turn in your zines to page 6, you'll see it printed there. We're not going to spend long here, but Derek Thomas spoke about work becoming the centerpiece. Work becomes the main, main purpose in our lives. 
What Romans 8 does, I think, is it rightly orients what should be our centerpiece and what should be life's purpose. And it's all about our connection with Christ. See, in Romans, just to give you a quick bit of context, Paul recounts a way in which God has acted to provide a way out of the terrible consequences of humanity's choosing to go their own way. You see that in chapters 1 to 3. And in chapter 3, God reveals his righteousness. He's acting to put a people right with him through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And, and this, this good news of Jesus putting things right and putting us right with God through his death and resurrection is not only to the people of Israel, but it's to the whole world. And what we'll see today as well is it's to the whole created world. That's good news. And so as we come to this passage today... Let's hear this good news that is identity-forming, that gives us purpose, and then it will inform the way in which we think about work. Starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know from last week that humanity was, was bound to Adam and plunged into the curse of the fall. And in that, we experienced what the, script, uh, the Romans says here is God's condemnation. And condemnation is, is God's displeasure. It's his disapproval. That's, that's our state in Adam. But now, it says, there is no condemnation. So God's displeasure, his disapproval has been lifted and the key words to, to describing this new reality are those words in Jesus Christ. So just as, as we were bound with Adam into sin and, and the world and its curse with it, now in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation because of his death and resurrection for us. What is true of him, because we're so now intrinsically bound to him, by faith is true of us. A picture of this, I, I, I don't know if you ever read, Mark Twain wrote a fairy tale about the prince and the pauper. The pauper he, he lives alone, is, is, is vulnerable, is disheveled, disrespected, poor, indebted. And the prince, well, is secure. They're royal, they're royalty. He has the wealth of a kingdom. And in this story, he sets his affection upon the pauper and marries her. And what happens at that moment? Well, when the prince sets his affection upon the pauper and marries her, she becomes a princess. She's now secure. She's clothed in majesty. She's respected in every court of the land. She's wealthy beyond all measure. And now she can call the king her father. We like to think that this is a fairy tale, but it happened about a kilometer down the road uh, with Prince Friedrich and, and Princess Mary. I'm not saying anything about Tasmania, but... but the, the reality is here is this is a picture in one sense, one picture amongst many others of what is the reality of us in, in Christ, the new spiritual life that Paul speaks about here. See, in verses 1 to 4, it says we were under condemnation. That is, that is we were, in one sense, under God's disapproval. We were enslaved. We were in our sin and our shame. But now, being bound to the Lord Jesus... 
where there is no condemnation. In verses 5 to 11, it says, we were, we were once clothed in the flesh. That is our, our old nature, it speaks about, and our old desires. But what are we now? Well, we're given a new and glorious dress by the Spirit, a dress of righteousness and a power to live a new life. And in verses 12 to 15, you know, we were without a home in this world, but what do those verses tell us about it? Well, it says that we're adopted into God's family. We get to call the king our father. And in verses 16 to 17, you know, we, we had no future, but here we're heir to an inheritance which we can't even possibly imagine. And all this is because we are in the Lord Jesus. How did we get this? Did we deserve it? No. It was given to us. Our identity is not something that we form that comes from outside. It's given to us. And God did this, verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. This should, as we think about our lives, be our centerpiece. This should be our key identity. This should be the thing that drives our purpose. And when this is the centerpiece, it frees us to live to the glory of God and for the good of others. It frees us to see work with new purpose. And as we think about our work in this world, we need to remember that we do so from that centerpiece, from that core identity. But I think this passage also gives us another bit of a puzzle which helps us put together a bit of picture of uh, what our purpose is in our work. Uh, in your zines, actually, on the, on the opening page, you'll see an artwork printed um, by British street artist um, Banksy, and it pokes fun at, at, at a famous quote by Marcus Aurelius from around 170 AD. The quote says this, what we do in life echoes into eternity. What we do in life echoes into eternity. But as you can see, the cruel twist is, the quote actually becomes about the transience of work, as you can see the, the cleaner wiping it away. It's cynical. But interestingly, a case in life imitating art, apparently by 8 p.m. on that day, Banksy's work had been defaced by other graffiti artists as well. But I wonder whether he'd probably quite like that. But it's an interesting thing, because it prompts us to think about our work in light of eternity. Jesus has died, he's resurrected, there's this promise of new life, we are new beings in him, and so what does our life look like now in our working lives between Jesus' resurrection and his return? Does what we do matter? Well, Banksy's work cuts close to the bone here. See, our work might love and serve people now, but, but in light of eternity, does it matter? I think in Christian thought, there's been kind of two extreme answers to this. The first answer kind of bluntly says, no, it doesn't count for much. It understands the scriptures to say that this world is, is set for destruction. Naomi and I, when we were first married, we were given uh, free rent at a house. Uh, we'd moved down the coast, and the guy gave me the keys and said, your free rent for a year, my only thing I ask is that you light a match on the way out. The house was set for destruction. Uh, they were knocking it down. 
And so, as you can imagine, our stewardship of that property was determined with the future of that property. So indoor cricket, open game, open season. <laughs> when things broke, doesn't matter. Let's, you know, that, that hook came off, well, I might as well rip the other one off as well, because I can, because this is going to be bound for destruction. Our stewardship of that house was in keeping with its future. And in a similar way, this understanding of our world, if, if the view of the future is that this world will be destroyed, then anything that our, of our work, unless it specifically relates to, to saving souls, is meaningless. Now, I overstate the case, but, but it's, it does shape some of our thinking. It, it separates the spiritual from the material. Now, it's important to say that I think as the Bible speaks about judgment, it speaks about it in certain terms, that it is coming and that saving souls is of immense importance. This is a priority. But to limit our Christian witness at work to only speaking of Jesus and, and, and to limit it to that at the expense of all other things, I think, is reducing the scope that the Bible paints for us. See, this, world, this view asks you that the world is broken and it cannot meet the end that God intended for it. And so then our work in the world, although it might be useful, it's, it's ultimately futile. Now, that view would be right if God had not promised to act. But as we saw last week, the whole earth suffers because of humanity's broken relationship with God through, through humanity. And so creation is bound to humanity in the curse, but Paul in Romans is explicit that God has acted in Christ and the effects of that are so far reaching that it includes the material world. So in verses 18 to 30, Paul says that creation waits. Another word that he uses um, that has been translated is groans. It picks up on the Old Testament language of, of a lament almost. Creation groans and longs for the day of the resurrection and new creation. It longs for the day where God's people will be liberated. It longs to itself to be liberated from its bondage to decay, this is verse 20, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It has not yet reached that end that God intends for it, because like us, it waits and longs for a future day of resurrection and new creation. See, its future just like in Adam was bound into the curse, creation's future is so bound up with Christ and God's people that, they, that that groaning and that longing for resurrection and new creation is something that creation itself speaks of. So that means that this, this creation will not be destroyed, but it will be renewed. But now it waits, language there, in hope, like in the pain of childbirth, it waits for the, the arrival of new life. Uh, I have four children, so I haven't personally experienced the pain of childbirth, but been, been you know, close by. And, and it's that, that, that longing, the groaning for new life. There is joy to come, but in the moment, there's groaning. And in those verses, it speaks about our own experience as, as Christians, that we, we suffer now, we, we groan now, but we will be resurrected and there will be joy. 
See, the Bible has a holistic outlook that marries both the spiritual and material. God cares about this creation, and so, therefore, should we. God cares about this creation and our work in it, and so should we. We ought to treat it and our work in it keeping with its future. So that's one view, but a right understanding of Christian hope has led to another, another view, which I think is a little distorted as well, and that's how our work relates to eternity. See, this view says that God is renewing all things, and our work in some way actually contributes to building the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, a recent proponent of this view is a scholar named N.T. Wright, and he has a very helpful book outlining Christian hope for this world, but this is how he applies it to work. He says this, Every act of love, gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation which God will one day make. Now, it's a wonderful picture, right? You can't deny that. It's a hopeful picture. But I think it's a hope that goes beyond where the Bible does. I think there are hints of this that, that might happen in the Bible. For example, in Revelation 21, it speaks about the kings of the earth bringing their treasures into heaven. But it's such a brief reference that it can only be a hint that this might happen. See, I think this, this view can fail to take into account the sweep of the Bible. As you read the book of Ecclesiastes, as you read the book of James, which speak in stark terms about the transience of life, that it's fleeting, that it's like a vapor, a mist. It doesn't sit well with that experience. Another writer, I think, gets close to the mark, and he says, work sustained by possibility isn't the same as work sustained by hope. Work sustained by possibility isn't the same as work sustained by hope. Wright's view here is a view about a possibility. We get hints of it, but there's no certainty. But in the mundane, the routine, the frustrations of daily work, possibilities, they, they're not going to sustain us. What we need is, is certain hope to sustain us. And I think that this that the Bible does offer us that in these next verses, in joining the dots. Let's look at verses 31 to 39. These last verses of Romans 8 speak of a certain hope in glorious detail, and they begin with a question in 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will, will life, will death, will demons, will angels, the past, present, or future? And Paul concludes that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This is our future hope. And this is the only true hope that we can hold out to others. And again, as, as we think about it, our, our colleagues, our friends and families, we, we all grab at things to make them the centerpiece of our lives, to find meaning and purpose. Yet here we see that the only thing that can that can shoulder the burdens of such expectations is the hope laid out for us in Christ, that nothing can separate us from his love. And so that means that our task now is to 
speak of the love of Christ. The task, as as the Great Commission tells us, is to make disciples of all nations. We need to feel the impulse of this. We need to hold out hope of Christ with our words to others. But again, we cannot reduce our witness to this with our work. See, our witness at work can also work another way. The way that we work and the work that we do acts as a taste of what is to come. Not the reality, we won't necessarily be there in full, but it might be a taste of what is to come. Uh, in, in London, we used, to, we used to walk to the tube stop and, and the kids would be often with me and there would be companies handing out free stuff. Juices, Coke, Kit Kats. And, and sometimes, you know, they would ask, rightly, why are they doing this? Now, I, I didn't sit there and explain to them that out of the, the generosity of their hearts, they just love to give stuff away for free. Uh, the reality is it's, it's a taster. The whole idea of it is that then you will go back and want more of that. I mean, the same, the same idea runs with any kind of online subscription, with Netflix or Spotify or Audible. What do they do? They give you a free month's trial in order that you get so dependent on it that you just keep it going. Or if you're like me, you forgot that you entered your credit card details and you just see it start to, to rack up. But the point is, they give a taster because they, they, they want you to taste it so that you will want more of it. And I think a consistent theme from Genesis to Revelation is that we are to live in a work in, in such a way as to give a taste of Jesus' coming kingdom. I think part of the role of the Old Testament people of God were to be, they were to be such a people under God that the nations would be attracted to them. And I think as we live with, with Christ as King, and if, as we live in ways that the, the new life of the Spirit is at work within us, we give a taster of the coming kingdom. That's part of our witness. Peter puts it like this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from fleshy desires which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and might rightly glorify God on the day of visitation. And Jesus says, let your, your light shine before men so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I think Peter and Jesus' point is, it's not, it's not just our words that point to the future. It's also our good works. So how we live and act will be a taster for that future life. How we live and act can act as a taste test of Jesus' kingdom, both now, which is Jesus' emphasis, but also of the coming kingdom. Through our work and the ways in which we work, we can give people a glimpse of the priorities of Jesus' coming kingdom. An analogy might be, might be helpful here. Um, my friends, Stuart and Tim, have, have this illustration. They said, our work relates to eternity like the way an architect's drawing relates to the finished building. That is, architect's drawings aren't part of the finished product. They don't act as flooring or support beams. They're usually not even framed or put on the wall. However, the drawing has a very real relationship 
with the finished product. It acts as a signpost, a point of what is to come. We're meant to, to see the architect's drawing and say, I can't wait to see the finished product. And it's that kind of relationship that our work has with the future. As we work with, with love, kindness, justice, truth, integrity, dignity, quality, this matters because it gives a glimpse now of what Jesus' future will be like. See, when our focus in work remains outward and selfless, when we work to glorify God rather than our own frame, in their own way, these are witness or hallmarks to the coming kingdom. And by working in this way, our, acts, our work acts as a taste of what is to come. So in this sense, our work does echo into eternity. And so how, how are we to think about this? Well, the reality is, with the various different fields that we're in, the various different work that we do, it will be applied differently. And, and that's where I think getting together in, in industry groups or talking about it in your community group, thinking about the ways in which you can give taste of the future kingdom and how that affects your work uh, is really important. But I think John Piper helpfully gives us a few ways that we can witness to God at work. And he, he just, I'll, I'll just limit it to a few things that he, he pointed out about the kinds of ways that our work should be shaped by Christ. First, he says dependence. Go to work utterly dependent on God. Without him, you can't breathe, move, think, feel, or talk. Not to mention be spiritually influential. Get up in the morning and let God know your desperation for him. Pray for help. And then we go to work, we go to work with integrity. Be absolutely and meticulously honest and trustworthy on the job. Be on time, give a full day's work. Skill, get good at what you do. God has given you not only the grace of integrity, but the gift of skills. Treasure that gift and be a good steward of those skills in your workplace. The growth in a skill is built on dependence and integrity. We can have, have shaping influence, corporate shaping, as you have influence and opportunity, shape the ethos of a workplace so that the structures and policies and expectations and aims move toward Christ-honoring things. Impact, aim to help your company have an impact that is life-enhancing without being soul-destroying. And communication, workplaces are webs of relationships. Relationships are possible through communication. So use your Christian worldview and, and weave it into normal conversations. Don't hide your light under a basket. Love. It could be endless, the applications of this one, but serve others. Be known as someone who cares not just to participate in light-hearted weekend tales, but the burdens and heavy, painful Monday mornings that people have. The way we use our money. It's all God's, it's not ours. So turn our, our, our earning into generosity. And thanks. Always give thanks to God for life and health and work. And be thankful person at work. Don't be a complainer. Let your thankfulness to God be evident to all. There, there, there's many ways in which you can see that living in Christ and seeking to be a taste of the kingdom to come, we can put into place within our workplace. And this is part of our witness. Our witness is to hold out Christ to people with our words, but yet it is to be a foretaste of the coming kingdom as we seek 
to live our new life in him. Tim Keller says this, there is a God and there is a future-healed world that he will bring about, and your work is showing in it part, your work is showing in part it to others. So let me pray for us now as we go into our weeks. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths that we read in your word. Lord, the realities of who we are in the Lord Jesus. We praise you that, though undeserving, you shower us with your blessings. And Father, we pray that that might be the true centerpiece, uh, our true hope in this world. But yet, Lord, we ask that that might work within our lives in such a way to help us to live a new life in the midst of uh, our workplaces and in the things that we do. We pray that we might be marked with those wonderful truths that we might be a kind people, that we might work with quality, with integrity. Uh, Father, that we might be people who serve and love. And as we think about these things in the context of our community, we ask that you might be at work within us to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus, both in, in word and in deed. And in your kindness, we ask that you might be drawing people to yourself through that work. In Jesus' name, amen.